This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This podcast is brought to you by Flygal Ventures. It's no secret that podcasts are a labor of love rather than any sort of substantial revenue stream. Well, this one is anyway. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast travel and production costs, please visit www.flygal.ca and browse our shop for some of the best RIA, custom flies, and apparel in the industry today. Thank you so much for your business. Carrie Berkheimer may have the most contagious laugh I've ever heard. If his laugh doesn't win you over, his custom fly rod certainly will. You'll be hard-pressed to find a Berkheimer rod owner who doesn't absolutely cherish their own, and rightfully so. They are some of the most beautiful rods in the world to cast. I met Kerry for the first time at his factory in Washougal, Washington, to see if he might open up to me about his aspirations, his company, and his past. Audio disclaimer, there are some minor disruptions as Kerry's workshop was in full operation at the time of our conversation. person april and, yes. I, and, it, and it's a little awkward for me so i'll be honest with you yeah all right i respect that and i won't dive into anything oh, you can you, can, you know I, i'm also an honest person and you know it's okay so whatever <laughs> i will not be asking what you sleep in at night i promise <laughs> that's, yeah, that's an easy question to answer april <laughs> 20 years ago it probably would have sounded better too yeah. <laughs> well, let's start really let's start with just um I mean, where were you brought up? Were you brought up in Oregon? Um, I was brought up in Idaho. Oh, really? Yeah, I was born in Boise, Idaho. And uh, that's where all this stuff started from. So did you did you grow up in a family of fly fishermen? Uh, I grew up in a family of fishermen, and not necessarily just fly. Uh, my dad fly fished. My grandfather, I have his fly rod. My dad, uh, right after World War II, and he was not in the war, but his uh, uh, the spinning reel kind of became more in vogue with the monofilament lines and all that kind of stuff. Some technological advances happened over bamboo, glass and all that stuff. And so he kind of sold out for the spinning reel. But he always had this kind of this tackle box. And I'm, here's this little kid. I, was, I started fishing literally at two years old. Literally. I mean, I was sitting there holding the rods, you know, sit here, don't move, or I'll kill you type stuff. Wow. <laughs> or the river will, so take your pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. exactly. You know, uh, and I'm sitting there and catching a little fish with a little rod, and it was pretty cool, you know. But uh, he had this tackle box, and he had some flies in this tackle box. Everything else was weights and salmon egg stuff and lures, and here's this section of flies. And I'd always stare at those flies and kind of play with them. And 
And it was a friend of his um, that had tied those when he was in the Forest Service. My dad, when he was a teenager, was in the Forest Service in the Rogue River Valley. Oh. And here, in, well, down in Oregon. Beautiful. And uh, his friend was an Indian named Sammy. And Sammy traded a bunch of flies for a twenty-two pistol, uh, which my dad, you know, uh, traded for. And so these flies always had me captivated. And they had some big brown bushy ones, and there were some kind of little kind of deer hair ones, which, which were muddlers, you know, and all right. this stuff. And so growing up, I would always ask these questions, and he'd talk about fly fishing and stuff, but we never really did a whole lot of it. And um, uh, it was a, a trip that we made, I guess I was about nine years old. We made from, um, I think we were actually living in Lake Oswego at the time. We made a trip from Lake Oswego, Oregon to Montana. And uh, uh, I was going to fly fish this trip. So I saved my money, and there's a sporting goods store that was that went out of business. And I went in there with my two dollars and fifty cents, and I bought a fly rod. <laughs> Seriously, it was a glass fly rod, and it was a closeout, and I bought it for two dollars and fifty cents. What? It was so off brand. I don't even know what it was. It wasn't a Berkeley. I was it was something even weirder than that. Yeah. And uh, so I got a line in a, 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 a reel for Christmas. Aww. And uh, we were going to, you know, we headed to Montana in July that year, and I had everything ready, man. And I mean, it was all, I was just dreaming about this trip. How old are you at this point? Nine years old. Well, okay, wow, you're just a baby. Oh, yeah, and there's stories that go around this that are crazy, just crazy. But uh, we headed over to a river. Uh, well, actually, we, we started on the road, and we got to where, where we were going to go, and there's a little stream in central Montana called the Muscle Shell. My father traveled a lot, and he knew a bunch of the property owners through his business that he was doing. And we had some exclusive rights to be able to get on this private property and fish. Mm -hmm. So we shut the gate behind us and drove in, you know, and uh, and I'm getting all strung up and digressing a little bit. We stopped in a, a town called Harleton, which is in Montana. And there was a sporting goods kind of fly shop looking store kind of sitting off to the side of the road. So we pulled in there. Well, this guy had fly selection. The guy was kind of grumpy. And I said, you know, hey, I'd like to buy some flies. What works here? You know, and, and so he was smoking this pipe and he looks at me kind of funny. And he reaches in and grabs his fly box and he throws out some of these and some of those. And they were gray hackle yellows, gray hackle uh, reds, and gray hackle peacocks. And so the hackle was gray, and the bodies, you know, yellow, red, and peacock. And they were really small. I, I'd only seen my dad's flies, which were pretty big, the muddler minnows and all that stuff. But these flies were like 16s and maybe even 18s. I mean, they were small. Teeny, yeah. Yeah, for me. You know, and I'm going, wow, and, you know, what, what do you use these for? You know, and I'm asking these questions, and he's, he's just wanting to get kind of rude of me. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad paid the bill, and we went camping that night, got up early, and went to the mussel shell. And uh, my sister was fishing with us, too. She's a fisher person. And uh, we're kind of working down this run, and she hooks a nice fish, and my dad hooks a nice fish. And these are nice rainbow and brown trout, really nice mm -hmm. from where we were at. And they kind of work around the corner. I say, I'm going to stay here, and I think I saw something eating over here. So I had my fly rod, and I probably lost... 50% of the flies in the first five minutes Ooh. between the rocks, the trees. You know, I didn't know how to fly cast. And so I kind of was looking around and I kind of made this funky cast and laid out there and a fish came up and rose at it. Yes. And I could not believe it. And I didn't hook him the first time. And so I'm kind of thinking, oh man, this is cool. I saw him come up, you know, and, and it was a nice rainbow. And I made another cast and I hooked the fish. And it was a 17-inch rainbow trout, which was Aww. the biggest fish I ever hooked at that point, yeah. ever. And it tore me a new one. I mean, it was upstream down. And I landed the fish. I couldn't believe it. I landed the fish. And from that point on, it's been fly fishing. You were stuck. Did your I, dad ever pick up? I mean, you said he fished, oh, yeah. fly fished a little bit. Yeah. Well, he kind of showed me some of the techniques he'd learned as a boy with the bamboo fly rod. Right. Like they would dabble, you know, yeah. and do things like that in the pockets. And he showed me a lot of, and he was good at it. He was really good at it. After he turned to spinning, did he go back to fly at all? Uh, not when much. You not much. He was, you know, the fly casting was always a, a bit of a challenge for him. Mm -hmm. uh, no one showed me how. I had to learn on my own pretty much. And for him, it was, uh, that was probably, the, I think a stumbling block for most people uh, in, in casting, in fly fishing. You know, they get intimidated 
And in reality, it's an incredibly easy thing to achieve. It just takes practice. Yeah. And you gotta. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to have a good coach. You know, some of the. But like a lot of things, good coaches are kind of hard to find. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of erroneous information and stuff that can lead you off in a bad way. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it does happen. Now, uh, we make blanks for Tom Morgan. Tom's a very dear friend of mine, and I'm going to see him. I've actually we fished together last year, if you can believe it. Uh, well, as he watched, I made the cast and fish because he's in a wheelchair, and he's a very very dear friend. But um, during uh, a conversation last year, about this time, Tom and I are kind of reminiscing about the old days in Montana and Idaho, because he, that's where he's from as well. Right. And I told him about the story I just told you. And he stops, and he says, wait a minute. Did you say Harleton? I said, yeah, the town. And he says, what flies did you buy? And I said, I bought a gray hackle, yellows, reds, and peacocks. He says, my aunt died those flies. No way. Harleton? The shop? That's where his whole family's from. His aunt tied the flies. Who was the Fauci guy who sold them? I don't know. He could probably tell me. But I could, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. The first fish I've ever caught that got me into this industry, and I'm selling blanks to one of the top guys in the whole world in fly rod designer, and I'm just going, this can't be real. (laughs) (laughs) How surreal. What And all the journeys that have from that moment on to the point of talking to the guy in the family connection. It's just unbelievable. I love that yeah. stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, I yeah, love it. It always movie. seems to come around. There's tons of puzzle pieces oh, that yeah. seem to fit together. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, let's, let's explain who you are to, to anybody who, unfortunately, uh, may not know who you are. You're pretty renowned in North America. Oh, kind of. I don't, I don't know. I mean, the people know the product pretty well. I'm kind of private. You know, yeah. I kind of hang out and hide hide in the corner, you know. And I'll, I'll vouch for that. Yeah. I'll vouch for that. Because I, I knew who you were for years, and I didn't know what you looked like. Yeah, and... You know, I'm the almighty, powerful Oz. You know, the guy that hides behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of well, are yeah, that yeah. guy. You are that guy. Yeah. Well, let me explain a little bit to my listener because we're sitting in your office right now Yeah. in your factory. And that is why we have, there's rattling and there's phones ringing and there's guys in the background. I mean, we're in the factory. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's, it's really, really impressive. Cool. Um, it's really personal. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk a little bit about... How this all came to be, Carrie? Because it—I mean—you must look around and be really proud of how yeah. much you accomplished. You know, I—I I still walk in here, uh, especially maybe when no one else is around, and I look around and I—I'm in awe. I can't believe that this could happen. Uh, this is a dream. This was a dream for many years, and it, it finally came to the point where are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? So when when did you decide? You know what? I would like to be a rod builder because you make. Probably, I'm going to get in so much trouble saying this, and I don't care. <laughs> you make, you make hands down, if not the best, one of the best graphite rods. All of your rods are just like butter. When I describe them to people, mm-hmm. they are like butter to cast. Nice. They're amazing. Nice. So yeah. let's talk about when you when you decided this was for you and why. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of goofy. Um... When I was in high school, uh, I remember um, one evening kind of laying in bed thinking, gosh, I'm going to graduate. What am I going to do? And I kind of made this mental list. Oh, I, one was going to be, I was going to be a musician because I studied music, and I've been a musician for years. What, what went to college. Uh, anything from blues to jazz to whatever. We, I went to university. I'm a, jazz, I'm a classically yeah. trained jazz vocalist. Cool. That's I'm cool. The same thing. That's actually pretty cool. <laughs> this is awesome. Right. That's, we'll that's have a jam cool. out night. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but we, um, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, I want to play music, guaranteed. I want to be in the fishing industry. And I didn't know what that meant, but I just wanted to be in the industry. The third one, I will never divulge. Okay. Okay. So we'll move on. I'm thrilled to know that you decided not to dance. We like, we like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you chose the fishing industry with music on the side. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tried the music thing and, you know, sometimes um, our our best effort, our best energies, everything going into something, and there's the door is shut. Uh-huh. 
And every time I started getting close to something that was pretty big, and I came close a couple times, doors would shut. Were you were you on an, inst- an instrument? Or are you vocalist? Uh, instrument, guitar, bass, drums, vocal, oh, piano. I, well, I was playing everything. I can't do all that stuff now. I play guitar now, but I was doing all of this. I'd go in and to the jazz lab in the morning, piano lab, and I'd sit there for an hour and a half just on the keyboard, singing with the, all the chords, all the chordal changes, all that stuff, you know. And I got a good, I got to have a really good ear. Uh-huh. And I could pick apart the chords just by hearing them and, you know, started learning how to write music, all that stuff. Carrie, I got to tell you, when, I, when you just gave me the tour and I was walking around mm-hmm. and I was looking at all the tools, you're going to love this. My dad's a luthier. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my dad built some of the most beautiful guitars oh, my I've ever seen in, in my life. I'd love to show them to you. Yeah. But when you go into his workshop, it's so... It That's reminds cool. me of this. Um, it's really hard to find proper tools in that world. So you make your own tools. Sure. And when I was looking at your cork press and some of the yeah. tools over there, they look, they remind me of my dad's workshop. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. I, I, okay, this is, I, yeah. I can see this in you. Yeah. yeah, So back to you, the doors were closing. And yeah, I mean, the music industry, boy, it's a hard industry to be in. And we knew people in it. My, one of my mother's best friends was the married to the vice president of RCA Records for Pete's sake, wow. you know, and I kind of we kind of hung around them a little bit, and I it's not a very good clean business to be in at no. times. I don't know how it is now, you know. So the doors kept shutting, uh, and I remember one instance where I just thought, well, actually, the story's kind of kind of long, and we probably don't have enough time on the podcast to do this. But to put it in a nutshell. Uh, I ended up getting married and having, uh, we had a, a little girl, uh, Anne, and um, that kind of took the music scene out of my reach. And I, and I made a conscious choice to, to say goodbye to mm-hmm. it. Because, quite honestly, a bunch of the people I were hanging out with, was hanging out with were probably not what I'd want my family to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them turned out to be heroin addicts after a while, cocaine addicts, alcoholics, and very few of them didn't participate in that. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that was right the right environment for my, my family anyway. No. no way is my daughter going to be around this stuff. <laughs> There's no way, you know. You and made I, the right decision. And I divorced myself from the music thing. I just did, and I, I didn't pick up an instrument for years. And it kind of personally hurt a little of the soul in me. But not when I saw my daughter. That kind of replenished it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that, that fills the void pretty pretty easy. It was a worthy, a worthwhile yeah. sacrifice. Yeah. Then I had a, a son um, three years later, and uh, we were going full bore. Um, during that time, I was actually building homes. I was in the construction business, oh. and I used to be a. I had a, my own construction company, framing houses, finish work, everything, and. Um, and I didn't build rods at the time. Is what had happened is our economy tanked in about 1978, 79. Mm-hmm. And we were, my dad and I were in a partnership on a couple of places and we couldn't sell the houses. And so we ended up, I ended up moving into one, had to dump the other, and then I was unemployed completely. So you're racking your brain, what am I good at, what can I do? You got it. And the first thing that came to mind was, well, shoot, I got a drift boat, I can part-time guide. Of course. And yeah. that worked, because I'd been fishing this whole time, mm-hmm. been fishing, and uh, actually got into steelhead fly fishing a little bit in there too, but not, not a whole lot at that time. So I was pulling plugs and bait fishing and everything else. Uh, you know, getting people in the fish, and I was feeding the family. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the uh, customers says to me, "You know, gosh, your rod uh, doesn't look like you, you know, very professional equipment. You should do something." It was an old glass right in the gill that I had. That was okay. a, a spinning rod. Yeah. It was good. I still got it. It's a good rod, but it didn't look like you know high end clients that <laughs> weren't going to want to hang out with the guy with the right in the gill, oh, apparently. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was. <laughs> It was really more of a trout rod than a steelhead rod. Yeah. So I went to my dad and I said, "I need to, I need to uh, borrow three hundred dollars, and um, I'll pay you back, but I need to build some rods for the boat so I can get these, you know, my clientele fishing the right gear and stuff like that." And I'd never built a rod in my life, and uh, so I kind of looked, uh, read a couple books like Dale Clemens, you know, custom rod building book, and asked people down at the local shop they were building rods and I asked those guys and I went and bought three kits drift rod kits put them together finished them 
and I took my time doing it, you know, wrapped everything, did all the cork work, everything, and I put two of them on consignment on a little shop uh, on the East Fork of the Lewis River, out in Battleground, Washington, out here, and the guy says to me, I don't sell this kind of stuff, he was selling guns. Right. And I'm, I, we don't sell this kind of stuff. Leave them here. You know, if you sell them, I want 15% or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just don't sell this stuff. Good luck to you, kid. He sold both of them in less than a week. Seriously? Seriously. And he calls me up and says, I, I got a check for you. I don't know what it is, but the rod sold. And he says, make some more. So I was able to pay my father part halfway back, go buy a couple more kits, built those and put them in the, in the shop. Those sold right away, too. Seriously. So, who were the big players in the game at this point? Uh, back then, it was primarily Loomis uh, was the biggest player. Lama Glass was around, but Loomis was the up and coming. Uh, Lama Glass again, and um, Sage. I don't. Uh, they may have started up. They weren't even around, and that was a fly deal. This was all bait rods at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I built more and built more, and I found out that there were several people buying these rods. One of one of them was a hunting uh, well rep. He was buying them for his customers. That's what I was wondering. And this guy would go in there and buy everything. I mean, then he finally contacted me direct and told me who he was. And, geez, all of a sudden I I built that guy at least 12 to 15 rods just Mm -hmm. because he liked the quality of the work. Right. And I was getting, I got pretty good at it there uh, doing that. But, and I missed this, did you say you had blanks? uh, I was buying Loomis blanks. They were Loomis blanks, okay. Yeah, at the time. Uh, During that time... Uh, of course, I'm guiding and selling rods to put food on the table. Uh, I heard about a job that was available at Frito-Lay. One of the things I swore I would never do while I was when I was doing that imaginary list of what am I going to do for my life was I was never going to work in a factory, ever. When you say Frito-Lay, do you mean like the chips? Chips. Uh-huh. So chips. then what happens? Well, I got hired. And I folded boxes 12 hours a day for months. All I did was fold boxes. How long were you there for? For I was there for two years. Oh, wow. But okay. the thing that, this is the, um, I guess we would call it a life lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was building homes, I might build two or three homes, and I might take a month off and go play. Now I couldn't do that, and I had to grow up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Folding boxes was not on the list, April. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no. And there I am folding these boxes, and I mean a warehouse. We're just sitting there filling pallets and pallets and pallets of boxes for these chips to be packed in. And I kind of teamed up with a guy from the East Coast. His name was Ed. And we're folding these boxes like crazy, and all of a sudden we're having kind of fun. This is like a competition. Okay. And we got so good at it, they flew the guy that designed the boxes because they were special fold up from Texas to watch us. What? I swear to God. <laughs> I mean, we're flying. It's like, boom, done. And it's not just the four. This was a weird display box with all sorts of ribbing and, and stuff. And and this guy is standing there watching us, and he starts to interview us. And we're just working like wild guys, having a good time. And 12 hours a day, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd get off at 3.30 in the afternoon. You know, and die. Oh my god! And uh, so long fishing. Yeah, well, pretty much. Uh, from that point on, I worked my way through Frito Lay and actually ended up as a machine operator. Which uh, everything I've done has helped me in this business. Yeah. When we talk about connecting the dots, uh-huh. even folding boxes. Now I don't go back and fold boxes. It was the discipline to be able to find out how to do it, do it well, and be content, uh-huh. even with redundancy that would drive most people crazy. And uh, it was a, a huge. Advantage. I had to be humbled, you know, to the point of, of knowing this isn't going to break me. I'm going to make something great out of this. Yeah. yeah. And I did. It was fun. It actually was fun. So what was your transition? How did you transition out of the box? Yeah, my transition was, uh, of course, at Frito, it's a, it's a union shop. And so I was able to bid out of it. I, I folded boxes probably for about five months. They saw I was serious. They put me in the packaging, which was brutal. Mm. I have never seen women work so hard in my life as packaging. You got these bags coming 120 a minute at you. You got to pick them up, three in each hand, all the labels up, and then you got to weigh every 12th to 15th bag, make sure the weights are right, and pack them in boxes so that the sales guy can grab them out and put them on the on the racks. And my table is overflowing the first 
month. Mm-hmm. I mean, bags are flying. These gals would come over. They're just having a great time. Like I was folding boxes. Right. They'd go, table empty. They'd go right back to theirs. There's right back to working. And I started asking, how are you doing this? This is impossible. Yeah. That was a huge lesson. And I, I have a lot of respect for gals at work. I've never seen gals work harder in my life as that job. And keep a good attitude about it. Yeah, because you, awesome. you're very jovial. Well, yeah, I trying think. to be. Yeah, you know? and, and so. so you're you're one of those guys who has the job yeah. where you, you're smiling anyway. Yeah, and this is this is where I could I was working swing shift, so I'd get off at uh, at ten o'clock at night, eleven o'clock at night, and I'd get up early, six in the morning, and I'd go fish, and then I didn't have to be back to work till two or three. And I had some some very very good fishing times. I was fishing three or four days a week then, right? And it was incredibly good time. Lots of fun. Yeah. I was able to make money, still fish, support the family. You know, uh, take, I'd take my daughter in the backpack. Right. You know, and we'd be out steelhead fishing. Win-win all around. Oh, yeah. It was a great time. So where did the rods, how do you start building rods? Yeah. While I was at Frito-Lay, I built rods for some of the guys that worked there. Oh. And oh. so I'd still, I was, this was still going on. Yeah. Because, you know, I was making 50 to 100 bucks a rod, so it was pretty good money back then. Yeah. It's, it's like making $300 now. And so I'd go up to uh, Loomis Composites and the different companies, and I remember buying a kit uh, for this one guy at Frito-Lay, and the sales manager comes out. Now, I had gained kind of a reputation at this point as a rod builder. Mm. And I was buying other blanks from people at that point, mainly fly rods. I was mm. buying a, Kenny DeFisher was in business back then, and I was buying a lot of their blanks, and in fact, a hundred a year. I was on their special buy program. And the guy from Loomis, uh, uh, Jim Britt, came up to me and he says, why don't you buy our fly rods? I mean, you're buying our bait rods, but how many are you make in a year? And I told him, and he just about fell dead. And he says, what's wrong with our stuff? And I said, Jim, it just isn't, it's not what it needs to be. It, they don't cast well. They, they don't do this and that and the other thing. The bait rods are pretty cool, but these don't work well. At that point, Kennedy Fisher is making blanks for Scott Rod Company, mm-hmm. for uh, Winston Rod Company, okay. uh, some Leonard Graphite. Uh, so a bunch of the big players that, that were being supplied through Fisher. Were you completely satisfied with them or just, you know, you were you were well, satisfied with them? Um, I don't think I was completely satisfied. They had some glass rods that were awesome, mm-hmm. that were really nice. I don't really talk much about the graphite stuff. It did the job. It did okay. It wasn't mm-hmm. perfect or awesome. Or, and I didn't know that much about it, although I was a pretty good flycaster at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, is What had happened is that uh, one of these trips up there to buy a kit, I saw one of the owners up there, and they're talking to me. Owners of? Of the Loomis Composites. Loomis, yeah. And this is, this is, Gary actually left that company. Right during this transition time. Oh, so when was this? This had to be 80, 79 or 80. Okay. Yeah. They hired me from Frito-Lay. Actually, I was a part-time consultant for them for marketing research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they specifically aimed at fly fishing because they knew I was a fly fishing nut. You know, that's all I could talk about and do. That's all I wanted to talk about and do. Right. And uh, they hired me to uh, actually go to West Yellowstone. Uh, at the Federation Conclave there, and it was in 1980, August, and to just kind of get a feel for the market, tell us what, you know, what does the public think of us, so I made this big old uh, questionnaire type of deal, you know, what's your favorite rods, what do you like about them, what do you think of our product, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. and while I was at West Yellowstone, pretty remarkable thing happened. Like I say, these are all dots, right? I love it. Oh, this is awesome. This is crazy here. I, through reading books and stuff, I kind of knew who some of the people were, but we didn't have no internet stuff, you know, uh-huh. the exposure that you have now. And I, I saw Lefty Cray over there, and he's casting these rods, and there's this kind of this shorter guy with this big rod tube, like 10 inches in diameter. And uh, this older guy is taking these rods out and putting them together and casting them, and Lefty's just going crazy. Mm-hmm. He's going, God dang, this is the best one yet! You know, Lefty Cray. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you know him or not. He's, he's a really dear friend. And I went over and introduced myself. Yeah. And they asked me who I was, and I told them what I was doing, and they were seemed interested. Well, the old guy turned out to be Russ Peak, who's one of the premier rod designers ever. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Ever. Russ Peak. Ever. 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 <laughs> who did and, he design rods for? Uh, April. Everybody. But nobody knew it. 
he made some of the most the highest quality graphite and glass rods in the world ever, ever. And he they just subcontracted him to come in and help them design. They would, they would he did some product uh, for Lee Wolf and and uh, Joan, <laughs> of course. That was through Garcia. He was always the guy kind of in the background. He had his own rod business where he might make a hundred a year. They were very expensive, all hand done. Uh, incredible craftsmanship. Right. Incredible. We struck struck up a good friendship. I actually got hired on full time at Loomis right after that meeting because they liked my work. Right. So I was earnest about it and hard worker. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started corresponding with both Lefty and Russ Peak. And I actually flew down several months later to Russ's shop. In, it was in Pasadena, California, and was a actually struck up a great friendship with him, and actually an apprenticeship to to a degree. I didn't know it at the time, but mm-hmm. it was where I was mentored uh, specifically, not so much into the, the design work, but in the craftsmanship aspect of it and how to read a, a design that you just did. That's the important stuff in raw design. It's not even so much the materials, it's the proper use and design of the materials and things mm-hmm. that, that matters. And that's what I was coached in from him okay. in a very uh, indirect but direct way at the same time. And this is a guy, I was at his shop maybe five or six times a year, maybe two, three, four, five days a week, or during the week. So not not like huge blocks of time, like months. But during, during those short, brief times, people would call from Orvis. The president of Orvis would call. The president of Lama Glass. Steve Rajeff had called. Uh, Jimmy Green from Fenwick had called. Uh, all these different people called Russ to, to see if he would critique the product and give them input in how to make it better or if it was good enough. That's that's about as top shelf as it gets right there. Yeah. And I'm just going, whoa. You this, are in the right this place. This is crazy. <laughs> this have is you, crazy. Have you left the packing world at this point? Oh, yeah. Okay. Done. So you Done. are a raw Oh, my gosh. Builder. Yeah, and I was working for Loomis probably 12 to 14 hours a day, and I was like a kid in the candy store. <laughs> I, I couldn't get enough. <laughs> the problem was is that uh, the owner of the sh- uh, and the engineer of the product was not a fly caster. Uh. And I'd say, you got to have to change the dynamics of this thing. The butt's too stiff for the tip. Can you loosen this up a little bit here? And I didn't know the language enough to be able to describe it to him. So... We went for several months where I'd tell them how to make, try to make these rods better, and they weren't coming out. Okay. And So this is before Ray Jeff worked for Loomis. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Ray Jeff was Sage at this point. At the time. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. And so the owner of Loomis, uh, one of the owners, it was two owners now, and remember, Gary's gone at this mm-hmm. point. He, I remember walking in his office, and I said, it's just not right. I mean, it doesn't feel right. And he throws his clipboard down on his desk and says, you do it then. And I said, okay. Kill <laughs> <Heal> me in. <laughs> Two weeks later, I had a model that was actually pretty good because I was a good fly caster. I was casting with Lefty Crane, those guys, and they were complimenting me on my casting. That was very unusual to see. Yeah. And so I could, I started to learn in the feel and the read and, uh, and then I started learning actually how to make it, how to manifest it, you know, to feel the way that I wanted it to. And I still had some um, Kennedy Fisher stuff I'd kind of compare it to and all, but we started developing more of our own, kind of our own feel. It's, it turns out to be, raw design should be, it's a very personal thing in trying to, you know, it, it's not just oh, it cast a line well, there's a whole vision that goes into it. Of why are you making it cast this way? What, what is the how is the loop laying out? What is the beauty of the of the unfurling of the leader and the lighting light on the water and all that stuff plays a big part of you know if you're making trout or spay mm. or whatever it's a huge part of it all and uh, but that was kind of where it all kind of started from at Loomis you know I was I was right in there in production manufacturing and marketing everything I didn't know that everything that is so interesting everything. oh it was awesome. So how long did you stay with Lewis for? I was there for almost six years. Okay. And um, the company, this now the Loomis name was changed to LCI, Loomis Composites, Inc. And uh, Gary Loomis then had started G. Loomis. So they... <gasps> oh. Yep. Okay. That's how, they, that's the transition of it all. Ah. And I still was friends with Gary. I knew Gary and his wife. I mean, they, they were just dear friends of mine. 
but we still, we were still on good terms and all that kind of stuff. I just worked for the other guy. <laughs> yeah. Know? He'll and, be on here soon. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Great guy. Great. Oh, and Susie's just a sweetie. She's, she's really spent a lot of time coaching me lots of time on, on rod building techniques. So, but it's after six years, I needed a change. Uh, we've done some projects and things, and I, I personally thought that we um, weren't doing things as strongly and as best as we could because you always, in business, you have to watch the bottom line, mm-hmm. but it's hard for me to watch the bottom line and then sacrifice the quality at the same time. That's yeah, it's a bad combination in this industry. Coming up, Kerry speaks with me about making his dream a full-time reality, how a fly rod is made, and clarification about rod breakage. At the time of this podcast publication, Christmas will be just around the corner. Why make your shopping any more difficult than it has to be? With free shipping on orders over $100 and with the U.S. dollar putting our Canadian dollar to shame, there's truly no better time to visit www.flygal.ca and see if you can get a head start on those stocking stuffers. Thank you again for your support. up guiding with John Hazel for nah all the pieces okay (laughs) John and I and Randy were all buddies before all this we were buddies back in the 70s right and John calls me up I told him I was quitting and he says shoot come on guide for me on the river so we Ah. ended up guiding on the Deschutes okay running the the Kaufman cabin out there right and uh, we did that for a couple years during that time, I got divorced because I was gone all the time fishing. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I, but I uh, was able to uh, had the joy of having you know being a single dad and custody of my kids. Oh wow! And uh, so I'm very proud of that. And uh, and uh, you know during that time it was a hard hard transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to quit guiding. I didn't give up fishing, but I had to quit the guiding, and I worked for my father for a couple of years back in construction to get my feet back on the ground because mm-hmm. the rug had been pulled out pretty hard. And um, we were doing real estate sales, waterfront real estate sales. We specialized in it. Right. And anything we sold had to be on the water. That was kind of the thing. And uh, I still consulted for LCI. Uh, I was a rod designer consultant for those guys and made them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Got remarried two and a half years into being a single father and uh, married to Marianne, who I'm still married to. It's 27 years. Oh, congratulations. Yep, it's very cool. And um, we moved up the Washougal River and started a cabinet shop. <laughs> Wizard, <laughs> which sounds excellent. I mean, was there a reason you wanted to go into cabinetry? I, I knew I met somebody that had the tools, and he's and I was had been in construction, and and he says, "Why don't we team up and do this together?" And that lasted about a year, okay. because uh, I ended up being the primary worker. Sixteen yep. hours a day, and, as it happens, and he didn't have to work because right. they uh, they were pretty well financially set, and so I quit that, and uh, still was in the rod thing though, as far as consulting. And you had a name, yeah. yeah. yeah well, the name started kind of disappearing a little bit, and it made me a little nervous. And I looked at my wife one day, and I told her, um, I said, I, I want to do the rod thing. You know, something I, I I don't know how to put together, but I want to try to do it. And it got down to where we were financially destitute. I mean, I could, we couldn't even go out for hamburgers. Yeah. I didn't have enough money for gas. The neighbors would give us some food sometimes. I mean, we were in a bad way. I've never been so low in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's because I quit the cabinet shop thing. It was doing okay. And it's so hard to see clearly when oh, you're yeah. so broke. Oh, my gosh. And I had another opportunity to work for another cabinet shop. And during this time, I should back up, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. During this time, John and I were kind of collaborating on a few things, too. Mm -hmm. Part of my consulting agreement was that instead of getting money, I I got a key to the shop. So I would drive from Upper Washington Drainage all the way to Woodland, Washington, which is about an hour and some minutes, and I would make blanks on the off hours. Wow. I was doing all my R&D and stuff on the off hours. And they'd leave at 3.30, I'd be there anywhere between 4 and 12 o'clock at night. You know, whatever it was. And making my own blanks. Well, Hazel calls me up and says, you need to look at these two-handed rods. 
you see, this is back in 1988, 89. Mm-hmm. I think it was 88. And uh, he tells me about them, and I say, 15 feet? They're 15. And I, I have been around two hands. I've been in the industry since 80. So okay. I'd seen some of them. Yeah. I met Mike Maxwell down in, in uh, oh gosh, in the early 80s down at the Moscone Center when the, when the, uh, International Sportsman's Expo shows down there. Yeah, because he really brought that knowledge and yeah. that education, or the two-handed fishing yeah. into America, right? Yeah, and in fact, Albert and I were down there in 1983 or 84. Right. And we were, we're friends, and we're standing there with Mike Maxwell, and Mike Maxwell is trying to describe a spade cast to us with no pond or nothing. <laughs> I'm going, what the hell do you have to do? Why don't you just go like this and get it out there? He said, oh, no, you've got to do it. You know, and he's telling and he's yeah. all this stuff. <laughs> and it's like this doesn't make any sense. This just doesn't make any sense. I have to see this work. Yeah. Cuz he couldn't make it work on concrete, you know. Right. And uh but John calls me up and says we should try to do this. I think this is up and coming. And John had a good vision. He saw what was kind of going on and He was right. He was dang right. Very right. We uh you know, being we were neighbors, he lived just a quarter mile down the road, so we I'd get so I'd start drafting stuff out and he he'd, get off work he was working for Kaufman's and we'd go down on the Washougal or meet in the early morning and go try some rod designs and uh, typically they were a little bit too strong with a little bit of a soft tip and so I made some adjustments and by golly we had a couple rods that worked he, he was taking people up on the Dean mm-hmm. as a host he took a couple of the rods with him and his customers from the Dean called me up and ordered rods. I bet they did. And I, all of a sudden, I was making two-handed rods. <laughs> okay, And the got first it. one was scary. I didn't know how to make the handle. I mean, everything was just from up here. Okay, I'll make a long, elongated, full wells. It looks kind of sexy, you know, and it's all curvy and beautiful, and, you know, and all this feel and all this stuff. And everybody seemed to like it. And, in fact, it's been copied quite a bit now. But um, that's how the whole two-handed rod thing started. You know, it was just I had to eat. <laughs> This is so interesting. I mean, seriously. Forwarding now, we're eating okay. I'm I'm guiding on the river again with Hazel because I had to give it up while I was a single parent. Now I'm back on the river for two years with John. And I told him two years is all I could take because I, I don't want to lose a second marriage. You know, mm-hmm. this is no. this is hard and hard life. Being gone 200 days a year, 175 days. Yeah. And it was getting down to I found another job in a cabinet shop. And they were going to pay me 14 bucks an hour, which was, like, unbelievable okay. to come work for them. And it was uh, a shop up the gorge here. And I looked at my wife, and I said, what do I do? I got an interview tomorrow at 11 o'clock. What, do I, what, what are we going to do? She says, I think you should follow your dream. <gasps> Good for her. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was pretty cool. And so I was going to go to the interview. I, have to, I got responsibility here. Yeah. The next day, I'm getting dressed to go to the interview, the shower and all that junk, and the phone rings. And this is like 10 o'clock in the morning. My interview is at 11. And the guy calls up and says, I want to order a rod, but I need it right away. Yeah, in fact, it was two rods. And that's going to feed me for two, three weeks, you know, and maybe even a month. Because you know, I've never been on the cheap side, but everything's hand done. Mm-hmm. And I say, i got to call you back. So I hung up the phone and talked to my wife. And I said, i got to have these done in like two weeks. There's no way I can do this and that. And I said, what are we going to do? And she looks at me, and it's funny, you know. She says, I guess we're in the rod business. Oh, how amazing. <laughs> Isn't that something? Did you ever stay in touch with the guy who ordered those two rods? He died. Oh, I'm sorry. He drowned on the Dean River. Oh, Ron. Ron Tenema. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a hard story to tell. Yeah, no, we... He was a good guy. Yeah. And I wish I could tell that to him. Yeah. Because uh, he's a really good guy. Anyway, uh, I've never turned... I've been in the rod business ever since. I called the guy up. I have to be at this appointment at 11. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm following my heart. I'm, I'm going to go for it, man. Um, <laughs> and I did. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Crazy, eh? It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Jeez. Well, so Amy last Ooh, night. I got a tear. Yeah. No, I know. It's, yeah. it's, and you know what? I, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, I lost a friend yesterday. Don't Ron Yorth. Ron Yorth. Oh, Ron Yorth my gosh. Died, d- drowned on the upper pit. 
Oh my goodness. So it's been, it was, it, Amy yeah. was really good with me last night. She yeah, was very supportive. That's hard. That's hard stuff. It's that uh, you don't get over it, do you? No. 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 And I, you know, yeah, it's, it's hard stuff to do. Good people in this industry. Yeah. That's why I'm in it. Yeah. That's, that's the primary reasons, the people. Well, one of those good people is Amy Hazel. Yep. And last night she was telling me the, one of my favorite stories about her meeting John at the trade show yep. at the Berkheim. That's Food. right. She wanted the three weight and she wanted to go cast the three weight. It's an excellent story. It's true. So you were there for all Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. And so were you really were you really established at that point? Uh, we were trying to get established. You know, um, John and I is what we did is we were going up and down. Okay. I was living on a credit card still, yeah. you know, and I had a, a couple really good credit cards, really deep, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they had low interest rates, too, which was cool. <laughs> and so, well, shoot, I, John and I would hit the road, and we'd drive to Seattle, to Portland, to L.A., you know, San Francisco, all the places doing sports shows. With yeah. the Berkheimer brand yeah. or with his with guiding Ber- company or both? Well, it's what I, I couldn't pay John. I, couldn't, I didn't have enough money to pay him. So I said, you go with me, I'll pay, take care of all the travel, food, expenses, all that stuff, and you can promote your guide business. Excellent. It could be a good marriage here, mm-hmm. you know. You talk about rods, I'll talk about, you know, and I'll talk about rods, and we'll both talk about guiding on the Deschutes, and it, it, it really helped establish him. It's a good combo. Oh, it's a super good combo. And he was so flamboyant, you know, John. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what we were doing. And so we're over in Portland here, uh, we racked up restaurant and wine bills that would kill us uh, Sultan <laughs> what <laughs> were you guys we were, doing we were drinking a lot of wine and having a great time <laughs> and not always I mean uh, there was a bunch of times we'd grab a block of cheese and some gourmet crackers and a couple bottles of wine and that was dinner you know but we were having a great time we really I think he were. still does that actually I think so, you think? so we started think off so? dinner last night <laughs> A couple blocks of cheese and some crackers yeah, and some wine. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Anyway, but we there's a couple of bills I still remember. Right. <laughs> like, how am I going to pay for this? Ron sales better be good tomorrow, dude. <laughs> how did that work? I mean, did, were you pretty well received? Yeah, it, we were. And we, we were. Um, San Francisco, historically, has been good mm-hmm. uh, with fly fishing. Uh, people knew me through guiding on the Deschutes, because mm-hmm. I had taken a lot of people out fishing at that point, stealing and trout fishing. And so my name had kind of circulated. They, a lot of those guys back then knew who Russ Peak was. Right. And so they kind of started tying it together. And we kind of told the story about it, you know, about how I had an apprenticeship under him and all sorts of that kind of stuff. So there was, it was really, it really did help put things together in a, in a big way. It really did. Things were tight. You know, it's expensive to do the shows, as you probably know. Yeah, it is. And uh, there were some times where I... You know, come Saturday afternoon, I hadn't had one order. Come mm. Saturday, I hadn't had one order. And there ain't no way I can pay for what I just spent uh, with travel and food and booth. Booth costs, yeah. Sunday made up for the whole thing. Oh. It's like I was being tested and tried. Yeah. <laughs> this just, industry will do that. This is what you really want to do? Only Let's the find determined out. survive. That's I mean, right. Seriously, there's some yeah. starving moments. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. I know that one. Yeah. Now, were you selling primarily single-hand rods, double-hand rods, or a pretty equal amount both, of both? Both. And primarily at this point, it was a lot of... The two-handed thing hadn't taken off quite yet. No. So we were doing a lot of single-handed trout rods. And some of the guides started buying them, you know, and I'd mm-hmm. give them a little break. Uh, and they were using them, and their clients would call me up. So it was really a good network that we had going. The two-handed thing started kicking off probably more towards the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really started... You know, we were doing a lot of two-handed rods. I started designing more of them. You know, the first rod was a 10-weight, a 15-foot, uh, three-piece. And um, still a great rod. Still yeah. a really good rod. At this point, did you have your own factory? No. So who were, where, you, where were you working at? I was still driving to Woodland making my blanks. You, in, the, in the factory there? Okay. I hadn't... That happened. I did that in April. There were times I drove to Woodland two, three times a day. What? Yeah. Because I needed to do something, something maybe, maybe something got broke or there was a flaw in a part. I'd actually go back to Woodland at one o'clock in the morning. Oh gosh! Yeah, and I had to like turn off the alarm. I remember the guy who's owned the building. He's saying, "What the hell are you doing here at two o'clock in the morning?" I said, "Dude, I'm working. What do you think?" It's like I am at a party. Yeah. <laughs> well, depending on how you look. Yeah, at right. It. Yeah. 
And I'd get home at three or four in the morning, crash out, get up at six or seven, and work the whole day. The whole day. But that's what you had to do. When did you? When were you able to be able to break free from Woodland yeah. and, and start your own factory? Yeah, I I was waiting for the magic number of can I sustain myself? Do I have enough orders to sustain myself now and still have you know have a facility, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, it wasn't until two thousand. I just looked at the invoice of the purchase of the equipment. It was in two thousand that we actually bought the equipment. Now it all makes sense. Yeah. Now it all makes sense. Okay, so yeah. if I was completely aware of you and wanting one of your rods, it would have been 11 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah it would have been 11 years ago. Yeah. And I remember um, talking to a lot of people, and they'd be like, oh, well, put your name on the list. It takes years to get a Berkheimer. And then I'd say, well, but I don't understand. Why doesn't he just up the production and put them in stores? Carrie doesn't, he doesn't want to be big. He doesn't want to be in stores. Yeah. And... I actually did respect that, and I understood it. Mm-hmm. But it seems—it seemed like all of a sudden, overnight, mm-hmm. you were a sensation, mm-hmm. and everybody wanted a Berkheimer. And to this day, everybody wants a Berkheimer. This is good. Yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> but when did you? I mean, you've always known. And when you showed me around the factory mm-hmm. today, you told me you know you didn't want to be a big, huge company, right? And I'm assuming that you will never want to be a no. big, huge company. No. Did you, are you a lot bigger now than you had wanted to be maybe 10 years ago? Um, I think that we're probably right where we want to be. We want to, we probably, well, here's the thing that I realized. Uh, working with Russ Peak, one guy uh, was doing all of his work, him. What if he got sick? What if he got in a car wreck? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to his family? Well, he was deeply embedded in the Mormon church. They're going to be taken care of. I wasn't. Yeah. And it's when I started having uh, kids, second marriage, we had two more children. I'm looking at my responsibilities, and I decided right then and there that I have to grow a business that can sustain my family more. So I'm going to have to have employees. I'm going to have to do this and that. What happens to me? What if I drown too on the river? I go out fishing all the time. and You never know what's going to happen. No, you don't. You just don't know. It's, there's a fair amount of risk involved in certain you know things. I've calmed down a wee bit now, though. <laughs> I'm not waiting around root wads anymore like I would I'd do anything almost yeah. to get in the right spot and I've calmed down so but I, it was essential to to raise enough revenue to have it, keep employees plus sustain some type of lifestyle you know that, that we wanted to have and it hasn't been until just actually about the last five or six years that all that has kind of started coming together I've, I've noticed is it still like a two year waiting list to get one of your rods? no no, working is what we did. April is we we started with the direct sales, and I had been in the fly fishing industry and in sales since 1980 and a half, like I told you. Yeah. And I knew every answer, and I knew every dealer's answer to saying, "Will you buy my rods?" And the first thing they say is no. So I wasn't going to solicit dealers. They were going to solicit me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. And my customers, unbeknownst to me, would walk into a shop or two and say, you should carry these rods. That's what I did. Okay. Because I, I was frustrated I couldn't get one of your yeah. rods. So yeah. I said, to one, I think it was actually Michael and Young's. Okay. Well, why aren't they just on the shelves? Well, we can't get them on the shelves. Right. So 10 years ago, how many people were working in your factory? Probably two, maybe one. And how many rods a week do you think you were putting out? Oh, geez, five. Okay. Yeah. And now, because you're still not huge. No. How many people, I mean, I've seen four or five today. Yeah, we got five. Okay, you've got five? Five here, eight that work outside. Well, actually nine. And how many rods are you putting out a week now? Um, We're probably, we we can do about 150 a month pretty easy. Wow, and you're staying at that? Yeah, we're sustaining that. We have now balanced the, there's a fine balancing act between dealers and direct sales. And a lot of the dealers don't like the fact that we sell direct, but... The trick to selling our product for dealers stock the product, right. because somebody like April says, "I need the rod tomorrow." If I call Carrie, it's going to be you know three, what six weeks, yeah, maybe you know. If I go to Michael and Youngs, I'll have it tonight. Right. And that's the trick of selling the product. So we never have a conflict. You know. Are you it's, picky about the shops you put your rods in? We're extremely picky. Yeah, I figured you might. Extre- be. Extremely picky. Yeah, they got to be good quality shops. There's no other reason to be in one. You know, yeah. You know, you, you, and they're good sales. You know, shops are good sales for us. You're giving some money away for, but they they sell product for you too. So yeah. they got to make money. It's a, it's a business. Let's talk about let's talk about your rods a bit because sure. 
I know a lot of people think about smaller companies and they think about custom rods and they think about high-end rods. And I'm going to put your rod at, at definitely a higher-end quality and price point. Sure. And they think, oh, well, listen, I don't need the jungle cock inlays and all right. that nonsense. Right. And that's not what you do. No, it's not at all. Your rods are very clean. There's no yeah. gimmicks. The quality is in the in the the action. Would you mind explaining and walking us through how the steps go to making a rod? Oh, sure. Okay. You mean it, it all starts with a design. Mm-hmm. You know, you're cutting your materials. Uh, we work with three different types of graphite material here. And in some cases, there's three different types of material in one rod, and that is to establish the type of action. You know, we're pretty picky here as far as what, what, how we want the rod to perform. That's a huge deal. Is one particular type of graphite better for, say, a slower action rod Absolutely. and one for a fast? Yeah. Okay. You know, part of the marketing with a lot of the companies is they'll come out with a new generation of material or something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, that might be great for saltwater rods, but why would I want a two-weight out of it? Yeah. Because I don't want a 60 millionth modules high-performing two-weight rod. I want something sweet and buttery, mm-hmm. like what you're saying. You know, uh, something's, and that's not going to be that material. Uh, you know, it's just it's not how the it's it doesn't the material is not going to work that way. Mm-hmm. High modulus is a measurement of elasticity, stiffness, relative stiffness. So we we try to match up the materials first and, and foremost to get the right type of actions. Then the, the patterns obviously have to be precisionally cut. We hand cut everything here. And in a large facility where they're making thousands and thousands of rods, they might have a stack an inch thick of material. Well, you're, if your blade tips off just a 30 second of an inch, mm. by the time it gets down an inch, you're off a whole lot of, of material. So your accuracy is gonna be you know, not as good. Mm-hmm. Um, so the cutting, every April, every step of the process of manufacturing is critical. It really is. You have to tack the part right. Uh, that means putting the material on the mandrel in the, exactly the right place. You have to make sure it doesn't twist. If it twists, you've lost all of your strength or, uh, in, the, in the product. Rolling. It takes, uh, you know, we keep track of what, where these parts roll best on the table because a butt section with a large diameter is going to roll better at a certain part of the table than a small tip. Mm-hmm. It will roll at the uh, at the opposite end of the table. Even down to the oven, how you work your oven. Now, that right. sounds stupid. You flip the switch, go have lunch, right? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that way. This is going to be where you want to ramp your material, your temperatures up, because the resin is, is uh, sticky on the material, on mm-hmm. the graphite, but it's going to become liquid as it heats up. Well, you want to bring that up. That you got to know your resin well enough to know where the exact point where it liquefies, mm-hmm. because you want it to saturate through the, from the top to the bottom all the way through before it locks up. If it prematurely locks up, you're going to have you're not going to have as strong a part. You're going to have mm-hmm. actually failure in the part. So you want to hold it so the hold it at a temperature so that 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 uh, temperature and the resin flows completely through. Then you bump it up in a few more degrees to slowly lock it in. Then you go go to the full uh, cure temperature. Okay, so so you're starting off on a table with one of your taper mm-hmm. mandrels, uh, mandrels, mm-hmm. and then you're taking various pieces of, of graphite, mm-hmm. whatever action or whatever combination of action you feel is best for that particular taper, sure. or whatever you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And then what shape are they in? Are they in that yeah. triangle shape? Yeah, saw? they're all flags. Okay. Yeah, kind of triangular flags. Flags, excellent. Yeah. So then you you wrap them mm-hmm. onto the mandrels. Yep. And then they go into the second stage, which is a machine? The cellophane machine. Okay. Yeah. And then the cellophane machine, is that yeah. the one where you showed me with the... That's where you take the clear plastic mylar okay. and wrap it on at high pressure, high tension. And you do that just to keep to lock the graphite in? Is yeah. that right? That, that holds it from... First of all, it keeps the it keeps the material from unwrapping. Right. Number two, it's, it's literally squishing any air pockets and things out. Because ah. it's going on at about 100 plus pounds PSI. It's very, okay. very high tension. Okay, so then when you put that in the oven yep. at, a, at a calculated temperature, yep. you are fine-tuning, it's a balancing act. Yep. And the graphite kind of l- liquefies a little bit, is that right? It does. The and resin liquefies. pushes out? Yeah. Well, the, the resin liquefy, you have the cellophane on the outer surface that's been wrapped with high pressure and, on the outside. And the cellophane is what, half an inch? Half inch thick. Okay. And we're running about 12 to 14 wraps per inch, depends on the part. Got it. Overlap. 
And so all of that resin is going to is going to force itself to the surface. The cellophane shrinks a little bit, you know, yeah. like about a percent, and it, it literally the resin kind of squishes in there. I've actually seen it kind of ooze out the ends a little bit, uh-huh. and that means you have good saturation at that point. So it clenches down, <clears throat> and then what happens from there, if anyone's ever seen a raw mm-hmm. rod or something that hasn't been filed yet, it's right. got those grooves on them. Yes. Okay, so you take you then take that blank, Yes. and it's in pieces at yeah. this point, obviously, and you file it down. Yeah, we, we put it through a sander. Okay. It's a, preci- a pre- precision centerless sander is what it is. Well, you had a story for me about yeah, sanders. Yeah. Um, when I first started this whole deal, um, I couldn't afford a sander. Right. And so I didn't sand the blanks. And it was an extra step that I just didn't have time for at the time. So I kind of took the route of saying that uh, the unsanded shaft is a good one. And it is. It is good. Uh, I was selling blanks to a very good friend of mine who was a good, a very accomplished custom rod builder. And uh, he calls me up one year and says, Carrie, I'm going to order a dozen blanks from you. I'm going to build these rods. Why don't you try sanding them and coating them? Now, he'd been after me for about two or three years. And I said, his name's Jim, very dear friend of mine. And I said, Jim, I don't want to do that. God dang it, you know, you're, you're, what are you trying to make, screw up my life here or what, you know? And he says, why don't you just try it? And so I talked to the guys up at LCI, where mm-hmm. I was building the blanks at the time. Mm-hmm. And I knew how to run the sander. Hell, I used to train people on it. So I said, I'm going to sand some parts if that's okay, and I need to buy some coating from you so I can coat the blanks, and I'm going to try this. So I did. And Jim was happy as a clam at high tide. (laughs) I went to sports shows that year, and my sales increased 40%. Seriously? And I've been sanding and coating ever since. Because of the aesthetics of it all? It's all the beauty of it. Wow. 40%. That is amazing. So you bought that machine. That was going to be part of the integral part of this company. <laughs> you got to have it look good. Oh, wow. Okay. Fly fishing, guys. You can't be too glittery. can't be too glissy, but God dang it, better look pretty. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> Actually, that's the story of my life. Come to think of it. <laughs> there you go. I hear you. <laughs> but that's amazing. So you have this beautifully sanded blank. Yep. And then what's the next step? So now we go into um, wrapping, thread wraps, and, and guides, and, and handles. Yep. Everything's done basically in-house. Yes. For the, for the most part, it's done in-house. Yeah. Even your real seats, you said... We have them actually machined for us. That is really unique. Yeah. Very unique. Yeah. I mean, I because I was in the industry for so long, I used to work with one of the head guys at Struble when Struble was around, Struble Real Seats. And him and I designed a bunch of different products together that actually became part of their product line. Mm-hmm. See, I'm a, I'm a creative guy. I see stuff. And you I, have to be an innovator. In well, you got to be. You, you really do. And you know, and it's nice to be able to say, geez, can we try this idea and have someone say, sure, let's try it. And two weeks later, you got a sample in your hand. That's pretty dang cool. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how it's worked out. So we have all of our own products, or our own real seats made. We make all the woods here. Now, your handles are some of the nicer handles I've ever seen. And I really like that I can feel the rod load through them. Good. We try to make our rods a little bit thinner in the grip anyway because mm-hmm. the cork can dampen some of the action. And so we're trying to come up with enough grip so that a six-foot guy or six-four hockey player mm-hmm. <laughs> can yeah. grab this thing and still feel the love of it, you know, what's going on. At the same time, uh, you know, somebody five-foot-five can pick it up and, and you know, not holding on to this big old club. Right. And the big thing is, is we want to enhance the feel, the feel of the rod through the. It should not. It's just not something to hang on to. It should be an enhancement to the feel of the action as well. Let's talk about something. Sure. I thought if there, if this was something you wanted to um, bring to light, you might. We might do that. Okay. There was a period there where um, I know I'd seen a couple of rods break. Was there something that happened? Was there? You know, we had a period. I guess it was back about. 15, 15 years ago? No, it was longer than that. It's been 17, about 17 years ago. I'd have actually only been in this building for 17, so it had to be about 16 now. And where we had an actual bad batch of graphite come through. And uh, we were selling a lot of 14 foot 3 uh, inch 9 weights back then, 9143. Still, people still want that rod. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sample material was fabulous. I got a sample, about 5-pound, 10-pound quantity. We made some product out of it. We tested the heck out of it. 
we, I mean, me, myself, and maybe one other guy. Yeah. And um, started. Then we got the actual shipment in. You know, probably about a fifty to hundred pound quantity. It's not cheap, by the way. Mm-mm. And uh, started building shafts out of it. Now at this point, I'm trying to keep up. So we're building rods like crazy. Yeah. And that um, was bad material. Even I didn't. Uh, I even though we had tested the sample, this was different material from the sample. No. And I was. I think we built twenty six. 9143s and every one of them came back. And in fact, I got to the point I would look at the UPS shipping because we had a computer by then. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, he's going to have the rod today. I'm probably going to hear from him by tomorrow. And I started calling people saying, it's going to blow up. Yeah. And uh, the beautiful thing is that every one of those customers stayed by me. Of course they would. I couldn't believe it. I I replaced all those butt sections for mm-hmm. free. I paid for all their FedEx shipping. Oh. I can afford that, you know, but that's what you got to do. Yeah. I just wanted to be able to put it on record because I wanted people yeah. to know that if they did ever hear anything, oh, yeah. that they can just yeah. don't worry about it. Yeah. The competition loves to bring up, oh, yeah, you, well, know, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's your warranty like with with your rods in? Warranty now is um, if, if you break it and they don't have an explanation and we don't go to get into a deep interrogation, right. <laughs> we're going to take care of you. Yeah. We'll take care of you. What's next for Carrie Berkheimer? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think we're just going to kind of continue. I want to, I'm happy. I'd like to probably amp up a little bit more production in the shop and we're We've reached pretty close to 1,500 rods a year. I'd like to get to 2,000 and then probably cap it. Just say this is what we do. We're not making any more. You know, the waiting list can get longer if that's what it Not to be arrogant, but I don't want to sacrifice no. the quality. No, I don't think that's arrogance uh, yeah. at all. I actually yeah. think it's it's integrity. I like yeah. that. And it's a nice size of a business. You know, it's a good size. Um, it's more. It's easily managed. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a good manager of people. You know, I dress like this is worse. <laughs> you seem like a good man. You, you, do, you don't seem like a micromanager. Well, I'm not a micromanager. Everybody is doing their own job. Everyone's so into what they're doing. Yeah. You know, you almost don't want to introduce yourself because they're they're in, they're working, man. They're oh, yeah. focused. Yeah, yeah. And you just go in and you say, hey, and you just leave them alone. And well, just, sometimes. Is that, yeah, is that an accurate portrayal? Well, sort of. Or are you being well-behaved because I'm, I'm here? I'm just being well-behaved. Yeah. <laughs> but so you what don't, the hell's going on out here? No, you don't I seem don't, like a micromanager I don't at all. stuff. You know, they're obviously uh, they can only do as well as they've been trained, yeah. and how well they've been managed as they've been trained. And I try to give everybody. This is such a cool business because it brings the artisan out in a person. And who am I to say use yellow instead of orange or something? You know, people express in the. You know, it's still got to be a Berkheimer rod. Yeah. But let them kind of figure out new. And some of the ideas we've come up with in here have been. You know, saved a lot of time and efficiencies that, that were better than what I was thinking. And uh, so I try to bring out that, you know, it brings out that type of quality in the people. You should be proud of yourself. Yeah. You, we, we, we're really trying to do a good job. Yeah, you have. And I feel like you've done it right. I've never seen anything that would show that you've sold yourself out. I mean, you really do seem oh, to stand by your word. We, um, we've had opportunities to do things differently. Yeah. And, and some of them were uh, tempting. Yeah. You know, you start thinking, gosh, more money seems, more money isn't everything. <laughs> you know, we, we have. Well, you know what Notorious B.I.G. says? What's that? More money, more problems. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> In case you didn't know B-I-G. for your musical background. <laughs> okay. B.I.G., I love it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next time as I sit down to speak with the unforgettable John Hazel at his home in Maupin, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.